Well, we're continuing with our series, What We Know About the Future, and uh, this is our fourth week in the series, and today's message is simply called A Timeline of the Future, and we're going to cover a lot of ground today. It's very possible this will feel very much like we're in school uh, instead of a Sunday worship service, but as I said at another recent message, you'll survive if every once in a while the sermon isn't the nonstop thrill ride that you're accustomed to uh, around here. So, uh, we're going to consider some timelines of what the future might look like from now, the present time, until our eternal state. And we'll give special attention, a special emphasis today and in the, ne in the next couple weeks to two things that are going to show up on our timelines, the tribulation and the millennium. And so we're going to jump right into this. I wanted to start today by defining some terms that are going to show up on the timelines when we uh, look at those or that some of you are probably already looking at because they're on the back of your sermon outline. So I, I wanted to find some terms. And, and so you need to write in the definitions to the terms. I've put the term on the outline, but you need to write in the definition. Uh, there are pens on the back of the chairs if you need uh, a pen. So here we go. The first term, church age. Church age. It is simply the period of time from the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 until the second coming of Jesus. The period of time from the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 until the second coming of Jesus. It is the uh, current time that we are in where the church is on the earth bearing witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus promised to build his church in Matthew chapter 16, and he has been doing exactly that for the past 2,000 plus years. The second term, tribulation. Now we're going to specifically consider the tribulation in next week's message, so we'll say more about it then. But basically, the definition of Tribulation is a seven-year period when unprecedented trouble will come upon the earth prior to the millennium, the millennial rule of Christ. Millennium, a 1,000-year period of time following the return of Jesus when Jesus will rule and reign on the earth prior to the final judgment and the eternal state. And now we're going to see today that not all believers share this view of the millennium, uh, but that is uh, the, the uh, definition that we're going with. 1,000 year period of time following the return of Jesus. I'm going to trust that you can write fast, so I'm just going to keep moving. Eternal state, a term that basically just means the eternal reality of everybody uh, that has ever lived, or for us, the eternal reality of believers. What will our state be, our condition, our location for eternity? And so that's basically what eternal uh, state means. I'll just let you know that believers' eternal state is going to be one of having eternal life in glorified bodies, living forever in the new heaven and the new earth. Are you thankful for that? Amen. Second coming, simply when Jesus returns to earth. 
What happens once he returns to earth is part of what we'll consider as we look closer at the millennium in a couple of weeks. But the most, most, ma- most basic answer definition is simply the second coming is when Jesus re- returns to earth. Sorry. The next one, rapture. The rapture is the catching up of believers to meet Christ in the air as uh, referenced in 2 Thessalonians 4. So the catching up of believers to meet Christ in the air. Now you don't have to write all this next part down, but some Christians believe the catching up of of believers and the second coming of Jesus to earth are essentially the same event. They they happen, uh, you know, just in quick succession, one right after the other. Believers are caught up, immediately return with Christ. Other believers see these as two separate events, that the rapture is the catching away of believers before the tribulation, and that the second coming occurs uh, when Christ returns with believers at the end of the tribulation. Uh, So what a person believes about that is largely determined by whether they believe that Christians live through the tribulation or whether they believe Christians are taken out of the world uh, before the tribulation, which we'll talk about some today uh, and as we uh, go throughout this series. All right, the next one, resurrection of believers. It's exactly what it sounds like. Believers who have died before Christ returns are bodily raised to life. Depending on your view, that will occur at either the rapture or the second coming. Resurrection of unbelievers. Again, exactly what it sounds like. All those who never trusted in Jesus are raised to life again to stand before God and face judgment. Uh, Believers have different views on when this will happen that we're going to cover uh, as we look at the millennial timelines uh, here shortly. Judgment is the next one. This is when believers and unbelievers both stand before God and give an account of their lives. Believers will then enter into their eternal reward, and unbelievers will be removed from the presence of God forever. Okay. And then the final one, new heaven and new earth. This is the eternal home of those who belong to Christ. We will live with Jesus forever on the new earth, which many people understand, including me, as being this present earth renewed, made new, restored to God's original design and intention. So again, you don't have to write all this down, but if you have Uh, ever been unsure how appealing it is to you to live forever somewhere up there? Like, you've not exactly tracked with how wonderful that sounds. You can stop worrying about that. Our eternal home is the new heaven and the new earth, which Revelation tell us come down out of heaven from God. We don't go up to our eternal destination Our eternal destination comes down out of heaven from God. Again, that's according to Revelation 21. Okay? So those are the terms that we're going to see on our timelines. Here in a minute, we're going to look at the four timelines of the future that represent 
the four dominant views about how the future will unfold from now until our eternal state, encompassing all of the things, all of the terms that we just defined. A couple other things I want to mention before we get to those timelines. First of all, the way we're going to do this is that today I'm going to present these timelines as they cover everything that we just defined, and then in the next couple of weeks we're going to look more closely at two things that we find on those timelines, the tribulation and the millennium. So today is the overall look at the timeline. Next week is the tribulation. The week after that is the millennium. Now, before we look at these timelines, what I want us to do is read the passage of Scripture that is probably the most central passage in determining how people come to their different viewpoints on the millennium. And, and in reading this first, we'll see how different interpretations understand this passage in setting up their timelines of the future. Please note, we have now entered the book of Revelation. Those of you who have clamored for us to enter into the book of Revelation, we are now officially doing it because we're looking at Revelation 21 through 15 today, okay? You're welcome. You're welcome. All right. So here we go. Revelation 20. Going to start out looking at verses 1 through 6. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil, and bound him for a thousand years, millennium, bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had, given, had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. That's where seven-year-old Brian got the idea that if he missed the rapture, he might still be okay. He could be beheaded <laughs> if, if you were here a couple of weeks ago when I shared that. So... Um, where did I leave off? Okay. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Now, Revelation 20, the next few verses, 7 through 10. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They uh, had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And now finishing after uh, finishing the chapter Revelation 20:11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. 
And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Now again, these verses are very important to the development of the timelines of the future that we are going to look at. Other passages certainly come into play, but these are very important uh, verses. This is a very important chapter in how people have developed their view of the millennium and these timelines that we're going to look at. They don't cover everything, but you'll see uh, how important they are as we go along. So let's look at these timelines now. You can look on the back of your sermon outline or you can look on the screen. They should be on the screen as we uh, come to them. The first view that we're going to consider, the first timeline is called amillennialism. There it is. It's amazing how smoothly things run. There it is. Amillennialism basically takes the position that what we read in Revelation 21 through 10 describes the church age, the period of time that we are currently living in. So you see that on the left side, church age, Revelation 21 through 6 is right now. So amillennialists believe that there is only the church age, there is no millennial reign of Christ. So, for example, when Revelation 23 says that the devil has been bound up to keep him from deceiving the nations, amillennialist, easy for me to say, believe that that describes the present and that it simply means that Satan's influence has been limited during the church age so that people are able to believe the gospel and to be saved. A millennialist don't take the reference to a thousand years literally, and they interpret it as just meaning a period of time, a long period of time. According to this view, Christ's reign is not a bodily reign here on earth in the future, but rather it is a heavenly reign in the present that Jesus spoke of when he said in Matthew 28, 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And so as you look at this timeline, you see that uh, a millennialist see the church age as being all there is. There is no millennial time period in their timeline. And then the church age is immediately followed by the return of Christ, which immediately results in the resurrection of believers and unbelievers, the judgment, the coming of the new heaven and the new earth, and the eternal state. So you see all that on there. It is a very simple timeline. Very simple timeline. Now, I'm not going to take much time to talk about this one because I personally do not find it persuasive. But, but if you'd like to dig into it, I certainly encourage you to do that. I just want to mention one thing that I believe undermines this view. There are more, but I'm just going to take time to mention one. It doesn't seem to me that the description of the devil being bound that we read in Revelation 20 can possibly match up with the current reality of the world. 
We, we know from Scripture that Satan prowls like a lion, seeking whom he might devour. We know from Acts 5 that Satan can influence people to even lie to the Holy Spirit. And those are just two examples. Uh, from our own observation of current reality, I see no way that we are currently living with Satan limited in the way that Revelation 20 uh, describes. His work is so evident everywhere in the world uh, today. And so there are other reasons, but if only for these, I find this view, this timeline unpersuasive. And so we're not going to take any more time on that. But I do want you to know and understand that genuine believers can hold this view. This is one of those things that disagreeing over it is simply disagreeing over something that's difficult to understand in Scripture. It does not bring anyone's faith or their fidelity to the Scriptures into question, okay? So if you happen to believe this, great, that's fine. I just, as Stan says, you're wrong, but, but, uh, but I, I, w I would have just said, being the nicer guy than Stan, that I just don't find your viewpoint persuasive, and so we're not going to spend any more time on that one. The second view for us to consider the second timeline is called post-millennialism. We are having a great day around here. <laughs> this view says that Christ will return after the millennium. So once again, it's a very simple timeline of the church age and the millennium running together. And you see that on the illustration. Followed by the return of Christ, resurrection of believers and unbelievers, judgment and then transitioning after that directly to the eternal state. So again, very simple timeline, very similar to what we just looked at, only the previous one said there's no millennium. This one says the millennium and the church age uh, are, 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 I'm sorry, I'm confusing myself. Let me look at this. Yeah, that the church age uh, leads into the millennium, okay? And I'm going to explain that more here in just a second. Where postmillennialism is different from amillennialism is that it says the gospel and the growth of the church will increase so that a larger and larger portion of the world's population become Christians. So again, amillennialism, just church age and Christ returns. This one says church age leading into the millennium and then Christ returns. It, essentially, this view says that rather than the return of Christ ushering in a time of unparalleled peace and righteousness on the earth, like the next views that we'll consider, it is the work of the church in the church age that will bring about the millennium, that will bring about this time of great peace and righteousness that will cover the entire world. Now, we're not going to spend much time on this view either, because once again, I find this view to be very unpersuasive. And I want to give a few quick reasons why I find this view unpersuasive. First, I don't find it persuasive because even though you can make an argument that the church is advancing in many quarters of the world uh, and growing, it is also true that the world in many ways is becoming more evil. And I don't think I even have to make that case for you. I think you just, you know that. As such, it does not seem realistic to me uh, that what is talked about in Revelation 20 can possibly be achieved apart from the return of Jesus. 
Additionally, quite a few passages of Scripture seem to directly contradict this very, this is a very optimistic view. <laughs> like, we're going to be so successful as the church that we're going to bring peace and righteousness over the entire world. It's a very optimistic view. And, and it contradicts, I believe, quite a few things that we see uh, in Scripture, such as when Jesus himself said in Matthew seven fourteen that the way that leads to life is narrow, and those who find it, according to Jesus, are few, are few. That doesn't really comport with like the church is going to usher in such revival that the entire world basically, uh, or at least large percentages of the world become Christian. Additionally, quite a few passages of scripture seem to directly contradict this uh, and, and, and make it seem like um, this is not what's going to happen. Paul's description of the last days in 2 Thessalonians. Here's what Paul says, of the last days in 2 Thessalonians. It's a time when people will be lovers of self, proud, arrogant, disobedient to parents, abusive, ungrateful, unholy, slanderers, haters of good, treacherous, lovers of pleasure rather than God, holding a form of religion or holding a form of godliness, but denying the power of it. None of that comports, in my view, with the idea that says the church age is going to usher in the kind of peace and righteousness that Revelation speaks about when it talks about the millennium. The many references in the New Testament to believers being persecuted in the last days also does not square with the understanding of the church ushering in this age of peace and righteousness that post-millennialists believe will be the case. And so for these and other reasons, I find post-millennialism unpersuasive. So we're not going to spend any more time on it. But again, while I'm not persuaded, this is a matter that genuine believers can disagree about because the Bible isn't entirely easy to understand on these questions. So now let's turn our attention to the two views, the two timelines that I think make the most sense in light of what we read in, Le in Revelation 20. The first is what is called classic or historic premillennialism. Classic or historic premillennialism, I'm going with classic. This view has a more involved and detailed, we might even call it complicated timeline but I believe it and the next view come closest to representing what is presented in Revelation 20. And there we go. There it is. This, um, this view and the next one say that Christ will come back before the millennium and that Christ himself will usher in, bring about the millennium. Remember the two previous ones either said there is no millennium, just the church age, or that the millennium would occur before Christ returns, this view and the next one say that Christ returns before the millennium and he brings about the millennium. This view says that the church age will continue until, as the end nears, a time of great tribulation will come upon the earth. After that time of tribulation, at the end of the church age, Christ will return and establish his millennial kingdom. When Christ returns, believers who have died will have their bodies raised to life and be reunited with their spirits. You see that in the little arrows pointing up? 
with believer written in the arrow, B-E-L, believer. Uh, so, so you see that. Uh, so they will be uh, reunited with their spirits, and these believers, as well as all believers, will reign with Christ for a thousand years. Now, some premillennialists view the thousand years as literal, a literal 1,000 years, Others still take a, a figurative understanding of it and just view the thousand years as a long period of time of undetermined length. During this time, Christ will be physically present on the earth in his resurrected body and will reign as king over the entire earth, and believers will reign with him uh, as already mentioned. Many premillennialists believe that during this time, many... But not all unbelievers still alive on the earth will turn to Christ and be saved. Many, but not all. And Jesus will reign in perfect righteousness and there will be peace throughout the earth. Some premillennialists believe that the earth will be renewed and that we will experience the new heaven and the new earth during the millennium, while others believe the new heaven and the new earth will only occur at the end of the millennium when we enter the eternal state. During this time, Satan will be bound and cast into the bottomless pit so that he will have, and here's what I think is key, no influence during the millennium. Not just limited influence, no influence. And that's going to be important. That's going to be an important detail as we look more closely at the millennium in a couple of weeks. This view holds that at the end of the thousand years, Satan will be loosed again. I wish we didn't have to do that part, but Satan will be loosed again and join forces with those who remained in unbelief during the millennium. Satan and these unbelievers will join in battle against Christ, but Christ will defeat Satan and defeat all of his enemies. At that point, all of the unbelievers who have died will be raised to life, and believers and unbelievers alike will stand before God in judgment. Believers will receive their eternal reward, uh, which will be eternal life in the new heaven and the new earth, and unbelievers, those whose names are not in the book of life, according to Revelation 20, will be cast into the lake of fire. Now, it goes beyond our purposes today to delve into this issue of whether the lake of fire is literal or figurative. But what we can say with certainty is that those whose names are not in the book of life will be cast out of the presence of God forever. And friends, here's what I always say. I, I don't personally view that as a, as a question that we really have to wrestle about too much. If you believe it's literal fire, I think that's fine. If someone else believes it's not, I think that's fine. But, but, but here's what we have to come to. Whether the fire is literal or figurative, just the fact that unbelievers will face an eternity completely separated from the presence of God is an absolutely sobering and frightening thing. If there are no literal flames, an existence absent the presence of God is a terrifying possibility. So if we look at the classic premillennial timeline, we see everything that I just described. And, and, and we see kind of how it aligns with Revelation 
uh, 20. It's quite consistent with what we see in Revelation 20. And I'll mention here that this particular view has a very long history of support from the earliest centuries of the church until now. All right? Now, the next view is very similar to this one with essentially one significant difference. The next view has a really fun name, and it's called pre-tribulational premillennialism. And there it is, pre-tribulational premillennialism. Again, pretty much identical to the view that we just considered with the difference that the previous view sees the church as living through the tribulation where this view believes that the church is taken out of the world prior to the tribulation and then returns with Christ at the end of the tribulation and everybody says, can we just vote right now and we'll vote for this one. <laughs> Where's that survey form, God? <laughs> we we, we want to indicate our support for this particular uh, view. So where classic premillennialism views the catching of the saints to meet the Lord in the air and the return of the Christ as one and the, sa the same event, this view holds that Christ will catch the saints up, which is referred to as the rapture before the tribulation, and then the saints return with Christ at the second coming after the tribulation. And so obviously the points at which classic and pre-tribulational premillennialists disagree with each other are not covered in Revelation 20. So we'll look at some of those relevant passages next week. And, and there are a few other differences between these, uh, but they're not actually that relevant to the timeline, and so we're not going to uh, go into those, but just limit ourselves uh, to these distinctions for now. So as I've already stated, of these different views, these different timelines, amillennialism, postmillennialism, and premillennialism, I find the case for premillennialism most compelling. And so for the sake of time, we're not going to do this together today, but I would encourage you this week to sit down with these timelines and Revelation 20. Read through Revelation 20 and kind of chart it out on the timeline and see how closely it matches the premillennial view. I think you'll find that it matches up uh, very well. In fact, I think even our casual reading of it today, you've probably been able to identify that this matches up pretty, uh, pretty well. Uh, but I, I think it'd be great, a great exercise for you to do uh, this week. So if premillennialism is most compelling as I believe that it is, then we're left to decide between these two premillennialist views, classic or pre-tribulational. Pre which is basically deciding just a couple of questions. Do we believe the catching up of the saints and the uh, second coming of Christ are one and the same event, or do we believe that the catching up or rapture of the saints and the second coming of Christ are separate events? And of course, that leads to one of the most discussed and most often debated topics in all of end times prophecy. Do believers live through the tribulation or do believers escape the tribulation by being raptured before it begins? And of course, then there's also the view that says uh, that maybe they'll be raptured in the middle of the tribulation before it gets really bad. Okay, so there's, there's a, lot of, a lot of stuff we're working with here. But, but 
One of the key differences is what is our posture, what is our thought on whether believers live through the tribulation uh, or are uh, spared from living through the tribulation. It's probably fair to say that for much of at least the latter half of the 20th century until now, maybe even a, a bit longer, but, but definitely during that time frame, the most common view, at least among evangelicals, which we are, uh, has been pre-tribulational, pre-millennialism. The, the belief that the church gets taken out of the world before the tribulation. Should be noted, though, that pre-tribulational, pre-millennialism is relatively, a relatively recent uh, development. It's a viewpoint that is relatively new in the history of the church. For most of the history of the church, up until very recently in historical terms, most of the church would have likely held the classic pre-millennial position, meaning that the church believed the catching up of the saints and the second coming of Christ were one and the same event, and that most of the church believed that Christians would live through the great tribulation. Now, as I already said a minute ago, if we got to decide these things by vote, no doubt the pre-tribulational view would win the vote. I mean, who wants to live through an unparalleled time of difficulty and human suffering if you can escape it? I think any reasonable, pers reasonable person would say, I'd like to escape that. Why, why, why live through that? Uh, yes, I vote for the pre-tribulation view, but we don't vote on it. It's not a popularity contest between the two. And really, the only way we're ever going to know for certain is as it unfolds. We, we will only find out for certain as the events unfold and as we see what happens as we experience it. That's really, that's really when we'll know which of these views is correct. But of course, based on Scripture, we are left to decide, each of us individually, what we think is the best view, uh, what, what we think best matches what the Bible says. Again, keeping in mind that genuine Christians can come to different viewpoints on this and still be faithful to God and the authority of Scriptures, again, because this is just a topic that is difficult for us to understand. I'm guessing, and we're not going to do a show of hands, but I'm guessing that if we were to survey Vineyard Christian Church, I would guess that most people here probably hold a pre-tribulational, pre-millennial viewpoint. I personally am a bit of a fence-sitter uh, between the pre-tribulational and the classic uh, positions. And, and it goes beyond today's message for me to make any case for one or the other. But for those of you who are interested and for whatever it's worth to you, I will tell you that if I had to choose... If you backed me into a corner and said, Brian, I'm going to punch you in the face unless you tell me uh, which one it is, first of all, I would assess you and decide what I would think about that threat. <laughs> if I didn't think it was much of a threat, I probably still wouldn't, you know, do it. But, but if you backed me in the corner, threatened to punch me if I didn't tell you, and I was slightly afraid that the punch might hurt, then, then I would admit to you that I think it's more likely that believers are going to be on the earth during the tribulation. So that's, that's, that's where I would land if you, if you forced me. If you forced me. 
And next week, we're going to look more closely at the tribulation. And then the following week, we're going to look more closely at the millennium. So as I started out, I know this has felt a little, a little like school today. But in light of these timelines that we've considered today, in light of what we read in Revelation 20, and in light of what I've just shared about my own view regarding the tribulation, and really whether, whether that's true or not, these next questions I want to ask you are really important questions. And so I want to wrap this up today by asking you to seriously consider a couple of questions, all right? So here's the timeline. What we know with absolute certainty in this timeline is that Jesus Christ is going to return. We know that with absolute certainty. What we know with absolute certainty is that that little H there that represents the judgment seat of God, what we know for certain is that every believer and unbeliever, every person who has ever lived is going to stand before the judgment seat of God and give an account of what they did in their lives. We know that for certain. And then what we know for certain is that there is going to be an eternal state for everyone. That's either going to be eternal life with Christ in the new heaven and the new earth, or it is going to be an eternity cut off from the presence of God. And so while this may feel very academic and very much like we're in school, these things that we know for certain, they're going to happen to every single one of us. And so it's important that we wrestle with the implications of these realities. And so I want to ask you to seriously wrestle with these questions. Here's the first one. Are you ready? Are you ready? Whichever of these timelines turns out to be correct, or even if something different than these turns out to be correct, Jesus is coming either way. We know that believers and unbelievers are going to stand before God either way. We know that we're going to spend eternity in some state either way. And so knowing these things, it is important to ask this question. Have you received Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord? And if you haven't, are you willing to do so? You need to. You really need to. Those of us who have received Christ, we know we're saved by grace through faith. But friends, our works are still going to be judged. We're still going to stand before God and give an account of our lives. Are your works going to be consumed by the fire of God's judgment? Exposed as wood, hay, and stubble? Or will your works endure the fire of God's judgment and be revealed as gold and silver and precious jewels. It matters. You know, I think many of us have the attitude that, well, you know what, as long as I'm there, I, 
I don't really care about any of the rest of it. You know, if everything I spent my life for goes up in flames, if, you know, if Stan has a huge mansion and I've got a little shack out on the back 40 of heaven, <laughs> I'll be fine because I'll be there. And I, and I understand that thinking to some extent, but I think it underestimates the feeling that we're going to have standing before God and watching how we spend our lives be exposed and consumed as a big waste of time. Amen. Not having helped the kingdom of God, not having lived the way God wanted us to live and was willing to empower us to live if we would have just given up and let him empower us. So I think we underestimate how that's going to feel. I'm not sure I agree with this, but I think I might. Uh, Charles Stanley, a long-respected Bible teacher, he, he actually has a pretty well-developed uh, um, belief about how people are actually going to res experience regret in heaven. Now, I'm not committing myself to that, but if you stand before God and watch everything you gave your life to, just like consumed by the fire of God's judgment and you have nothing left, I don't know. Charles might be right. It's, it's something for us to think about. Unbelievers and believers alike need to consider this question. Are you ready? Are you ready? And then here's the second question. Are you fearful? Are you fearful? Does the reality of these timelines and what the future holds cause you to become fearful? If you have never received Jesus and you admit that these things cause you to fear, I want to compliment you today because you have assessed correctly. You have assessed correctly. If you've never received Jesus, the reality of these timelines should cause you to fear. And what I hope you'll do is that you'll allow that reality, you'll allow that fear even, to drive you to Jesus for salvation. If you have believed on Jesus and you admit that these things cause you to be fearful, it's understandable, but I encourage you to run to Jesus for help, for strength, for courage. Can I tell you how I think that God wants us believers to face the reality of this timeline and the reality of the events of the end? I think he wants us to face it like the psalmist wrote about in the 46th Psalm. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way, and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, and the mountains quake at their surging. Though the very ground beneath us give way, the psalmist says, we will not fear. I think that's where God wants us to live. And, and while I can't tell you that I live in that place just yet, I believe we can live in that place. I believe that through the power of the Spirit, we can get to the place where we can look at the future 
and imagine any eventuality coming our way and face it and say, in the name of Jesus, I do not fear. Whatever happens, bring it on because I know what's at the end of it all. I'm going to be okay. Eternity is going to be great. That can be true for us. We can get to that place where we don't fear. No matter what's happening around us because we know God as our refuge and strength. Here in just a minute, I'm going to give those who haven't received Christ as your Savior the chance to do that. And I'm going to give those of us who are fearful a chance to receive prayer and to be encouraged and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And I'm trusting that today... God is going to cast fear out of uh, some of us in this place. So let's stand.